Yes, welcome back to the Lars Resort with myself, Lars Evenson. Uh, brought to you by Betson, of course. Starting to like the music. It's not that I didn't like the music at the beginning, but I'm starting to get used to this being the music. Feeling uh, feeling good about that. It's Friday evening, late in the week for a pod, but let's 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 do one now. Let's cruise off into the weekend at the Lars Resort. Uh, the weather over London is slightly overcast. I see both blue sky and some grey outside of my window. But of course, in the in the Lars Resort, the the weather is always fine. The the weather is warm and the drinks are cool. Unless you want a hot drink, that is also available. Just ask uh, at the bar. I guess this week, um, the big story, I suppose, is Man City. I just want to hang off. Hang Hold off? Yeah, that's that's the word. I want to hold off on the Man City chat. Just until start things... Um, I'm slurring my words a lot. I mean, it's, it's early on the Friday. Haven't even touched an adult beverage yet. It's somehow tripping over my words a little bit. I want to ha- hold off on the Man City chat because... I have heard a rumour that they're likely to win some trophies real soon. So I guess that seems like a good time to have the big Man City conversation uh, when the trophies start taking in. If we have it now, we're going to run out of things to say about Man City. And we're going to have to talk about them uh, no matter what happens. But, uh, but but the game against Real Madrid, I mean, it, it did feel quite seismic. We did always say, I said, and a lot of other people said before, that this is kind of the big barrier between Man City and the treble having to get past Real Madrid. We know their recent history in the Champions League, the aura they have, the quality players they have. And they just kind of... They they were just decimated, you know? But uh, Except that's not true, because I think technically decimated means to reduce something by a factor of 10, which is not what happened here at all. It was much more brutal. Um, I, I did At the World Cup, I did some work with some lovely American people, and, and I learned some new football vocabulary from them. And I feel like both of them applied. I was, I was, I was learned that if you lose very, if you completely overpowered, you lose very badly, then it's a trucking. They, they, they received a trucking uh, as if uh, in a sporting sense being hit by a truck, I guess. The other one was that if it's a more embarrassing thing, you get pantsed. Now, not, not sure how these are going to mesh with my sort of a uh, slightly hybrid weirdo accent that I speak in, trucking in pants. But uh, I feel like this game was a bit of both. I mean, tr- a trucking is when you're completely bowled over, overpower, flattened as if hit by a truck. Pants is more embarrassing. But, but then, of course, if you're Real Madrid, receiving a trucking in the Champions League in front of the eyes of the world is embarrassing. So it's a, it's a joint sort of pants truck uh, problem uh, for Real Madrid in, in this game. And... It, it, you know, for, for Real Madrid, it's it, it's it's been coming. I think it's fair to say uh, it, it, their run to the final last season. Let's be honest, was weird. And 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 this isn't me being a very sort of biased English. Oh, Premier League is great. The the Liga sucks. Type of thing. Let let Sid Lowe of the Guardian Football Weekly explain, as he put it very eloquently on one of their shows this week. Last season, in the run to the final, PSG could have beaten them 7-0. Like, Paris Saint-Germain were quite a lot better than Real Madrid uh, over those two ties, really, until uh, Real Madrid sort of came back late. And, of course, it was a a pretty blatant foul on the PSG goalkeeper that that sparked that comeback. Of course, nobody cares because no one feels sorry for PSG under any circumstances. But, you know, it was what it was. 
and, and of course, they weren't that good in the game. The point is, as Sid put it, much more uh, succinctly than I am, have so far. Home and away against Paris, that was four halves of football. Chelsea home and away, that was four halves of football. City home and away, that was four halves of football. Plus the final, that's two halves of football. That's a total of 14 halves of football Real Madrid played in the knockout stage of the Champions League last season. And, and, and Sid would argue, and I would completely agree, that Real Madrid were perhaps the better team in one of those 14 halves of football, that being the first half against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. They had this weird thing where they were frequently outplayed by their opponents. They've just kind of found a way, uh, fueled by Modric, you know, reaching deep into his reserves of, of, of Modricness, uh, fueled by second-half appearances by Kamavinga, this kind of injected uh, pace and, and purpose into the team. And, and of course, uh, Karim Benzema having this sort of crazy Indian summer that he had and, 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 and stuff. But there was also just such a discrepancy between what this Real Madrid were doing and what this Real Madrid have been doing recently and what the other top, top teams in Europe do. If you look around Europe at the teams who really impressed the last few years, you know, be it Man City or Liverpool or now Arsenal here, be it, be it Bayern Munich or Dortmund in, in Germany, um, the, the teams who really kind of set the agenda for, for how football is played at the very highest level, they tend to be very sort of high tempo, press high, 100 miles an hour, um, you know, let's play that way type of thing. That is sort of the general thing that most of the top teams are doing. Real Madrid been playing very differently. And they've been playing very differently for a good reason. Uh, because if you look at their squad and you look at what they have, they, they have some pretty old guys in, in, in central midfield with, with Cross and Modric who can't fly around pressing like lunatics. You can't ask them to do that. But they can also pass the ball like very few other people in the world. And, and Carlo Ancelotti, God bless him. It's interesting that Ancelotti is well known for being interested in food and and being a bit of a foodie because I can tend to look at him as as a as just a great chef uh, as a as a manager because he's not an ideologue like some people who have their way of doing things and they insist it's the right way whether that's Pep Guardiola or Jose Mourinho or Antonio Conte you know these guys who had this is the way to play football I think Ancelotti doesn't care uh, about like ideology in that regard. I think Ancelotti is a guy you bring him in and he looks at, okay, huh, what do I have in this squad? I have this, I have this, I have this. What kind of meal, what kind of dish can I construct with the sort of protein and carbohydrates and stuff that I have available to me? And at Real Madrid, you have some old midfielders who can pass the ball amazingly okay that's interesting you have a really 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 fast uh, attacking wide player in Vinicius Jr who can just go past anyone and is so ter- terrifyingly dangerous when you break uh, when you when you release him on the break you've got a pretty good defense you got a very good goalkeeper certainly a good shot stopper at the back there and you got uh, old man Benzema who you know in the later parts of his career, has sort of reached has reached new heights. I think he's a player who once he once his job became about more than facilitating uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, you saw a whole other player there uh, emerge. But he isn't young anymore, so there's a limit to how much you want him to run over 90 minutes. And Ancelotti looked at that and thought, "Huh, we are clearly not going to play, uh, you know, high line, front foot press, everyone runs like crazy type of football because that would make no sense." But what we can do is we can sit back a little bit, we can suck people in because we trust our defenders to hold things off, 
and then when we have an opportunity to spring Vinicius on the break we have some of the best you know passers of the ball in the world in midfield to do that and he can just kind of link up with Benzema who by the way doesn't have to do a lot of pressing if we play like this because you don't have to necessarily like try to win the ball high up the field so it's, it's made perfect sense the way Real Madrid has played uh, the last couple of seasons with with Ancelotti and it's gotten them success relative success they didn't win the league this year which is bad they, they're not winning the Champions League this year which is also bad but it's been a decent uh, time at the club overall for Ancelotti I think most people would say in the in the big picture but when they came up against Man City and the way they played it just looked so old and I don't necessarily mean the old dudes in the middle I mean this sort of idea of sitting off a bit of, of letting the sort of big individuals do big individual thing when faced with this sort of angry swarm of Man City players who are just pressing constantly, not letting anyone settle in the ball, moving the ball so quickly when they have it, it looked like Man City had at least one more player on the pitch because they were just sort of all around them and buzzing around and running. And, and it just looked like, I mean, I know it's one game and we're reading way too much into it, but it very much looked like the football of the future uh, versus the football of the past in uh, in this type of game. And I think it's, for, for Real Madrid, I guess, they're going to say all kinds of things about, oh, it's a, it's a state project and we can't compete. Well, okay, but you do also have quite a lot of money, Real Madrid. I share a lot of the concerns about what this Manchester City team is, and we will get to that at some point uh, this spring. Uh, we're going to have to talk about that. But, but Real Madrid do have the resources to put together a team that plays in, I mean, such a bad word, but a slightly more modern way, more mobile, more running, uh, more athletic capacity, more pressing off the ball, uh, put the, you know, push the team higher up, maybe, this sort of thing. But you probably can't do that with like Kroos and Modric in midfield, right? Re- realistically. And I'm not even sure you can do it with Benzema. So it's interesting to see where they go in the future. Certainly, I think the nature of the defeat. You can say there's no shame in losing in the semi-final against uh, Manchester City. But I think if you're Real Madrid, A, there is a bit of shame in that. And B, I think there is shame in their whole method of playing football, basically being made to look outdated and outmoded and and like yesterday's version of this sport uh, in front of the whole world. I think that is not a good look for the team uh, and for the club and, and the whole institution. So, so I, I do suspect this will help. I mean, maybe that's a transition that would have happened anyway, but that this will spark a, a change in this team. And of course, if we think the future is higher tempo, uh, a higher athletic capacity, more pressing, more movement, this sort of stuff, Real Madrid kind of have a lot of the tools for that already. Because I talk about Kroos and Modric who still kind of run the show in midfield, but they could also say, okay, bye guys, you've been amazing, but we're going to move on. And then you already have like a Chouameni Kamavinga uh, thing you can do in midfield there. There's no shortage of athletic capacity there. You can bring Fede Valverde back into a more central role where he played originally before they started playing him out wide. And of course... Word is Jude Bellingham is is leaning towards going to Real Madrid. So there's going to be no shortage of athletic capacity in this team. I mean, weirdly, Real Madrid could go from having these old masters who sort of manipulate the ball amazingly, but maybe the physical capacity isn't the greatest, and, and, and move completely away from that and suddenly have one of the most athletic midfields in world football. That's a change they could do pretty quickly there. And I suspect this is the kind of result that will trigger a change uh, for for them as a club and and where they go uh, moving forwards. 
you wonder if Ancelotti's going to be there next year. Interesting stuff. But that's certainly the Madrid side of, of that very, very fascinating game which was kind of billed as the game of the season in European football, and in a way it kind of was. It just wasn't exciting in that way. I I thought it was very, very fascinating, certainly, even if it wasn't exciting, just because of the way the total dominance of Man City kind of shows that that way of doing it, uh, of relying on individual moments of of brilliance the way Real Madrid have done, I just don't think you can do it anymore. Uh, I think at the very highest level, that's not how football works. I think there's a reason why, for instance, PSG have never been able to get all the way in, in, in the Champions League, and not even particularly close, because this idea of having essentially three passengers off the ball, it just isn't possible. One may be possible, but that's tricky. Two, I don't think it. Three is definitely not possible. They've sold a lot of shirts, PSG. I'm sure it's fun if you're 12 and you play FIFA. I'm sure it's fun to play as PSG. Uh, but but in, in real life, in real football, it doesn't work very well. There's a reason they continue to fall short of their targets. Anyway, I digress tremendously. As a, Actually, lastly, before moving on from this, it's kind of fascinating because I feel like the culture around football more than ever is focused on the individual and hero worship and you're seeing the rise of sort of certain type of fans certainly on the internet who follow players almost more than they follow teams which is a type of thinking that's really alien to me and really alien to a lot of people I, I know was certainly of my generation but but I try not to you know I try to be aware of the fact that every generation in history have, have looked at the younger people and thought they were complete lunatics and I try not to be like that and instead just look and see instead of focusing on what I think is wrong and bad. I think, okay, well, this is different <laughs> and try to understand the thinking behind it. Uh, certainly that seems to be the way a lot of football fandom online, at least, is is going. But simultaneously, as that's been the development in the culture, on the pitch, it's going completely the opposite direction. It's so much more about the team, about the unit. This notion of having a group of individuals who will just kind of figure it out that's completely gone out the door, really, and not not even Real Madrid can make that work. You need to have a stronger unit. You need to have a, a coordinated press. You need to have a certain you know sort of passing movements that the, that the players understand instinctively. Uh, it's it's completely gone in a collective direction, and that's so like the opposite of of what the the culture off the pitch is that is kind of fascinating to me anyway we uh we, we move on meanwhile in england actually before we had to England, this is still kind of european uh there was other european things this week and one of those things were plucky little west ham getting to a european final for the first time since the 70s very exciting for them and that has kind of been the vibe in the English media certainly that I'm guessing you know West Ham of all people you know West Ham um from the East London where where they sell eels and 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 and, and they have the little stadium that what that they've torn down now of course but that's that I think we still associate West Ham as being like a scrappy sort of East End club uh, and and they managed to get to a final and that's tremendous but, but I kind of had a different uh, perspective on this, which was that if you look at the sort of uh, the, the Deloitte Money League, you know, the, the the financial boffins at Deloitte who know all about the money or at least check the club's accounts, uh, West Ham have the 15th highest revenue in the world. Like their annual revenue is like 300 million euros. So they were by some margin the the wealthiest club and the most financially strong club in the Europa Conference League. I mean, if you look at the club's 
that are actually smaller than West Ham now in financial terms. They include every team in Italy not named Juventus or Inter. So it's so like Milan and Napoli have a smaller annual revenue than West Ham do. Every team in Spain not named Barcelona, Real Madrid, or Atletico Madrid. So like the two teams in Sevilla, uh, Villarreal, of course, Valencia, whoever you care to think about in, in, in Spain. Every team in Germany not named Bayern Munich or Dortmund. And also every team in France not named PSG, including every other European team outside of England, aside from the ones I just mentioned. I mean, a revenue of 300 million euros a year, it's about 10 times the annual revenue that AZ uh, have, who they beat this week. And there was something slightly weird, I thought, uh, about watching West Ham sort of bravely time-waste their way to a result against the team that has ten, like a tenth of their annual revenue. And the television coverage was almost like, whoa, you know, West Ham, they've gone away in Europe and won a thing. It was almost like an underdoggy vibe. Which was just really strange to me. And actually, like I really like the Europa Conference League as a concept. You know, it's a, it's a chance for teams from smaller nations in in uh, in Europe to have a have a proper European run, play in a group stage, maybe go to a knockout game. You know, fans get to go on those trips, which which are amazing if you have a chance to 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 do that. Um, it kind of redistributes money. I suspect the the prize money is. Uh, yeah, I suspect that tournament pays out more prize money than it fetches in terms of rights. So you, you kind of get that effect that I'm really looking for of the top end of European football subsidizing the lower end a little bit. But you're also doing it in a way that feels meritocratic because when you're thinking of like taking money that's earned by the big clubs and handing them out to the smaller clubs, you think that that seems a bit random. Why should they just get things? Well, this way you can do it in a way that's a bit meritocratic because they get it from from winning things, albeit in a much weaker tournament. So I think it's kind of genius. I really like the Europa Conference League. But whenever I see an English team in this tournament, I kind of think this isn't for you. Like, you don't even go here. This is like exactly the whole point of this tournament is that people with your budgets shouldn't be in it. And then, and then that teams who are sort of locked out of that end of the European sort of financial system, the European football financial system, that that they can have a tournament that's for them. The whole concept, if that you have a European tournament, that's not for the 20 richest clubs in the world. West Ham spent almost £200 million on players this year. Like, like, like Maxwell Cornet and Flynn Downs cost more for West Ham than AZ's entire annual revenue. Like, I looked this up on, on, on TransferMarkt, uh, the, the excellent TransferMarkt website, and, and certainly by their reckoning, uh, AZ have spent about 140 million euros on players in their entire history. So if you take what West Ham spent on Lucas Paqueta, uh, Gianluca Scamacca, uh, Nayef Aguerd, and Maxwell Corne, that's roughly equivalent to all the money AZ have ever spent. Right, so it's a bit of a mismatch, and I've got nothing against West Ham as such. Uh, God knows West Ham fans have have had some bad times. You know, they've had to watch some bad football. They've been relegated a couple of times. They've had some pretty weird coaches in charge. They've watched some pretty goofy dudes play for their team. So they are massively entitled to have a great time and uh, enjoy that final. It's going to be hard to get tickets. It's being played in a pretty small stadium out in Prague, but maybe go anyway. Prague is a great great place to go on a city break if you if you do a bit of research. Can I just recommend because it's a very tourist trappy place if you go to like the main tourist areas if you read up on it a little bit mm, some nice restaurants some good neighborhoods prague a, a weekend a destination that requires a bit of research and i put that in there for you west ham fans if you're going but there's some great things to, to see and eat if you do put it i like prague a lot uh, anyway 
I hope they have a great time. I, I wish them all the best. And of course it is. Tottenham have proven that it's entirely possible to be very wealthy and still get yourself knocked out of this tournament. Tottenham spectacularly managed to do that last season. I know there was a, a walkover game due to scheduling uh, problems, but they did also manage to lose to Vitesse and some Slovenian people. So, you know, congratulations to Spurs. Point is, I don't love it when I see Premier League teams do well in this tournament. I feel like the whole tournament would actually be better off if, let's say, the two or three highest-seeded national leagues in the sort of UEFA club country rankings, the one that they use to determine who gets how many spots in which tournament, let's just say they don't go into the Europa Conference League. Just give them an extra spot in the Europa League or something, because I, I feel like those teams kind of don't really belong there, is, is, is what I'm thinking. Anyway, European glory beckons for West Ham, I'm sure. Where does that leave David Moyes? That's an interesting one, I think, because David Moyes at West Ham, broadly speaking, has done really well. He finished sixth in the Premier League, which I don't think a lot of people would have thought that David Moyes could do with West Ham. Followed that up by finishing seventh. It's not bad at all. Um, they, they've had their way of playing, which is very sort of sit back, don't press, focus on counters and set pieces. And they've signed a team with like really a lot of tall, strong guys to make that work. And that was working really well this year. Seems they've tried to go in a slightly new direction. Seems that hasn't worked out really well. And you don't have to take my word for that. You can listen to Mikhail Antonio, who on a podcast with Callum Wilson a couple of months back just said that straight up. He said, uh, I have the quotes here. In the last seasons, we've thought, let's get to 40 points and not get complacent. Once we got there, we literally just enjoyed playing free, scoring goals, and that's how we got into Europe. But this season... Because we were so close to the Champions League places last year, we decided we wanted that and changed our mark. It's like we've jumped steps to try to push on and we've changed our philosophy. And it ain't working, said Mikhail Antonio. He also said, everyone in the top six play possession football, so we have been trying to score more free-flowing goals. We wanted to make the next step up, but we're conceding more goals because we're more open. So I wonder what the sort of media department at West Ham thought when Mikhail Antonio just kind of said this on a podcast. I think this is great. More of this stuff from players. I think that would be tremendous if uh, if players felt empowered to be more honest about the things that are going wrong at the football club. Because at the end of the day, fans are, ad- you know, most of the fans are adult human beings with eyes attached to their skulls. So they can see quite a lot of this stuff anyway. Um, it's pretty clear that David Moyes... He, you know, he's a divisive character. Uh, he has his supporters and his skeptics. But I think we have to say at this point, it does seem like David Moyes is quite good at just taking a group of hardworking, if slightly limited players, and turning them into a team that's really hard to beat, that can, you know, predictably finish in a safe Premier League position. And in the case of West Ham, managed to get them uh, into the top half and into the European places. This is really good work from David Moyes. And, and really... Finishing safe in a mid-table position in the Premier League is nothing to scoff at. I think there are a lot of teams who are just like a a couple of bad transfer windows and a couple of unfortunate injuries away from everything going wrong. Uh, Hello, Southampton. But at some point, you run into the issue of, do people want more than that? And, And people always kind of want more. You're always going into the season hoping it'll be better than the last. And when you're West Ham and you've finished uh, 6th and 7th and you've had a, a long period of being in the Champions League spots, of course you're hoping, yeah, let's let's push on. Let's let's be even better. That is, that's how sports work. 
but but the trouble is if if by changing the thing you're doing that you're doing well there's every chance you'll end up doing something that you're not quite as good at and it just doesn't seem to have worked really well for Moyes and West Ham this sort of more ambitious way of playing that they attempted earlier in the season then they kind of defaulted back to playing it safer again and unsurprisingly started picking up more points I saw uh, Jacob Steinberg of The Guardian very good uh, proper journalist man uh, reported back in March uh, and I quote from his piece Although Moyes has not lost the support of the hierarchy, his tactics are causing unease in the dressing room. It is understood some players have grown wary of his caution and feel it is holding them back. There is an increasing lack of faith in the approach favoured by Moyes, who has had little success with his attempts to introduce a more attacking style this season. So, so, so there is a thing that's happened with West Ham this year in that they've kind of Moyes has tried to evolve. You know, they brought in Lucas Paqueta, uh, Skamaka, I suppose. I think they were hoping they were getting a big target man, but that, that's not really what he is. Anyway, they've tried to evolve a little bit, and in the uh, subtle words of Mikel Antonio, it ain't working. So he's had to default back to old methods. Players are maybe a little bit uneasy about it. And it just seems like he's done a decent job now keeping them in the league. Two very excellent finishes and then keeping them in the league when things go wrong. There's no shame in that for David Moyes. But it does kind of make sense for them to part ways in in the summer. But then what if they win the European Conference League? What happens then? I, I kind of think the rational solution would be what I just said. Yeah, just go to David Moyes. Listen, two top half finishes is great. Uh, went wrong this year, but you kept us up. You know, thanks for the memories. We're grateful uh, for the job you've done, but we're going to go in a slightly different direction. I think that would be the, the rational thing for West Ham to do this summer. But that's going to be an awkward conversation if you've just won a European title. And uh, it, it just makes the whole situation slightly awkward. I think if he's going to stay... I feel like you got to tell David Moyes to just be David Moyes. You know, don't don't necessarily go out and spend a bunch of money on a Brazilian midfielder from Lyon. Just just if what you want is tall people who like to smash into people, then then buy that David Moyes because actually you finish sixth and seventh doing it that way, which is pretty good. I'm not sure they need to evolve much. Let Moyes be Moyes. I I I say because I'm not sure he's very good at being uh, being something else. It seems pretty obvious to me that they should kind of think about splitting up have a sort of con what what's what's the phrase a conscious uncoupling a, 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 a sort of amicable split from david moyes this summer how amicable that would be on his side i'm not quite sure but but west ham just go yeah okay it was good david but but we have other plans Th- that would be the sensible thing but it's so strange if they're going to do that after just winning a european trophy it's awkward scenes at West Ham this summer, uh, I, I I think. But then, of course, there is the be careful what you wish for thing. Because, hey, Southampton, uh, who were sort of pretty stable in the Premier League for quite a long time. And now they're not at all. They've been relegated. And and you know how this is kind of how the, the football sports media thing works. When teams do well, uh, we get articles explaining why everything they do is fantastic. And when teams do badly, we get articles explaining why everything they do is bad. Uh, this is how the industry works. And it's not necessarily a dig at anyway, because I like those those articles. It's it's interesting to read about things that have gone gone well and things that haven't gone well. And certainly now that Southampton are down, we're starting to get our first sort of batch of articles suggesting that like laptops and, and data and like nerds are to blame here. Uh, which is a relief, I think, because we've had a lot of articles about how laptops and nerds and stats are the reason 
for why Brentford and Brighton are so good. Now that Southampton have, have gone down, let's have some anti-nerd uh, press again to, to balance that out, I think. Um, Southampton, of course, owned now by Sport Republic, they're called, which is a sort of group where you have a, a Serbian gentleman named Dragan Šolak, who's a media tycoon. He's very much the money man. And they have a CEO, co-founder, and, and presumed football brains of the operation, uh, Rasmus Ankersen who's a Danish gentleman who, who who does a he has a very good TED talk. If you're even vaguely interested in this sort of stuff, do check out his TED talk. In fact, his TED talk is so good, I am amazed Todd Bowley hasn't hired him yet. You know, to, to add to his sort of small army of roving directors. Uh, you think Erasmus Ankerson would, would fit in very well there. But then again, if he is the CEO and co-founder of a, a company that now owns Southampton, maybe that's an even better gig for him. Anyway, these kind of like blue sky out-of-the-box thinkers, they can be very annoying and, and very easy to make fun of, especially when things go wrong. So why you ask, am I not sharpening my teeth and making, like, bad jokes about Rasmus Ackerson? Well, first and foremost, the reason is, I mean, the guy has a record in, in, in football. He, he's done things. He was the executive chairman of FC Mitulan when they won the Danish championship a couple of times. He's been involved at Brentford when they made sort of their remarkable rise uh, to the Premier League eventually. And, and both of those clubs were kind of known from being pioneers in terms of their use of analytics. And all the very clever people say they're very, very smart and results would seem to bear that out, which is why I'm so much more inclined uh, to to give Ankerson and and his sort of ownership thing a bit of a de- benefit of a doubt here, uh, with regards to Southampton, we can sit here and have a lot of hindsight, but it does seem like they went very young last summer and and to an extent in January as well. Like in the summer, I, I, they paid money for eight players, and they were let's just read off the ages here. They were twenty, nineteen, eighteen, twenty. 25, 19, 25, and 18. And they also brought Maitland Niles in on loan. He's 25. But but you get the gist, right? They spent something like 80 million, close to that, uh, which is a big sum when you're Southampton. And they spent it almost all on youth, which is really brave. And some of them are, are good already, and some of them will be very good. If we had our old friend Tor Christian Carlson back on, I'm sure he would explain to us that like there's some really talented guys. He had Romeo Lavia, one of these guys, on his sort of big list of the best young players in the world, a Southampton player. Uh, so, so some of these are super exciting. But I think there can. I mean, again, this is Captain Hindsight. I'm not claiming to be a, a genius uh, of the hair, but it does seem like you can have a problem when you bring in too many of these young guys who, who don't really know uh, what it takes to be a regular uh, player in the Premier League and, 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 and do what it takes to keep a team up. There was a line in one of these sort of uh, post-mortem articles um, in The Telegraph where an anonymous source had said that the squad was just basically James Ward-Prowse, Theo Walcott and a bunch of children. <laughs> and that's, that seems to be what Southampton ended up being this year. Uh, signing and using young players is good, it's smart, but then when you get too many of them in the building at the same time, there there is a risk. And, and James Ward-Prowse has spoken openly about standards slipping, uh, all kinds of leaks now about like poor timekeeping and uh, people being on their phones a lot. I wonder what they're doing on the phones. So if there's like a mobile game uh, that, that's more popular. This is something we need to get to the bottom of, I think. But uh, anyway, you, you you look at this Southampton squad and I see a lot of players who I think will be very good in a few years. 
but did, did they have a lot of guys who you would trust to get them out of trouble right now? Well, uh, it's harder to give a good answer to that, or I guess the league table has given us some kind of answer to that. So I guess what I'm wondering is whether the owners, maybe they underestimated the job Ralph Hasenhüttl did in keeping the team afloat. Maybe they looked at it and thought, okay, we have a team here that's finished 15th in the last two seasons, so we have a core of sort of, we have the core of an okay-ish Premier League team. If we if we just add some really exciting kids, it, it should be good. But increasingly, I think that that squad was, was only barely good enough to stay out of trouble, and that Hasenhüttl probably did a better job than we realize keeping them out of that trouble. And then they go very young, standards slip a little bit, there are talented but inconsistent youngsters everywhere, and then you have a managerial train mid-season that doesn't work out. And I have noticed how everyone's very keen to blame Nathan Jones, the only man who stopped uh, Manchester City from winning a tournament this season, by the way. And uh, listen, the Nathan Jones thing was pretty bad, but he was also, it's very bad, but he was also just in charge for eight out of 38 games in the league. Like those eight games don't relegate you. They lost 24 games all seasons. So it's not just his fault. And, and I just remember thinking in January probably even told you guys that there was a bit of a logic to what they were doing because I kind of thought, you know, they brought in Paul Unuachu, who's very tall. He's six foot seven. He's over two meters tall. Tall Paul, I think they call him, which I'm totally in favor of. Uh, they brought in Kamaldine Sulemana, who's like this tricksy dribbler. Mislav Orsic is kind of fast. Uh, so I kind of thought, okay, I get it. You know, get it out quick to the wide men and have your sort of speedy boys run at people uh, and either cross into the box or win fouls. Uh, so that James Ward Prowse can uh, can use to cross to the giant man in the box. You know, you can see it work. You can see a blueprint. Um, uh, but, but then Nathan Jones is out because that all went a bit strange. And uh, and Ruben Sellis comes in. He seems to want to do a high press thing, which which doesn't really work with Onuachu because he's not the you know he can't run around all day. I don't think that's not what his frame is there for really. Uh, and, and Orsic just disappears completely. That remains a very strange signing, Miss Love Orsic. That's a Premier League quiz question waiting to happen isn't it who was the croatian international who joined southampton in in january to 2023 and played a total of six minutes in the premier league that's a good premier league trivia question how does this happen it's how it's so weird because the guy is 30 so you know what he is you've seen him play a lot of football there's a lot of data available you know that he's a guy who who's pretty fast uh, runs fast, mostly in a straight line, but he is pretty fast. Uh, not the cleanest technician in the world, perhaps, but we've seen with Dinamo in Europe and with Croatia that he can be a threat with his speed and his sort of directness. So, so, so he is what he is, and you sign him and and you bring him in and you give him six minutes in the Premier League. What's what's how bad is this dude in training? It's all very very weird. So, okay, obviously this has been a mess. I suspect uh, perhaps the esteemed Mr. Ankerson. Uh, uh, with his experience with FC Mitchell and Brentford, may maybe he underestimated uh, just how good you have to be right now to not get relegated from the Premier League. I mean, we've spoken about it before. The caliber of player that you see fighting for relegation now is crazy. I mean, it, it, a, a league, a football league is always going to be like a zero-sum game. Someone needs to lose more games than they win. So there'll always be teams who, who lose a lot and then who look terrible. But I just kind of look beyond that a bit and just look at the starting lineups. And there are just so many good players everywhere. The, the level is, is very, very high. And... Um, I, you can think outside the box and get young players and you can moneyball as much as you like, 
but you have to try to make sure you don't get relegated, <laughs> you don't get beat. And 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 Brentford are a touchstone here, obviously, because Mr. Ankerson was there for a long time. They're they're frequently lauded as this very smartly run club. But the football they play is actually pretty basic. There's a very solid core there. I, I, I saw Thomas Frank speak about this after a game uh, that they'd won and he said he'd asked his team for three things to run like demons I think he said or something something of that ilk and then to win the 50-50s and then to win the set piece war as he called him but if you can do those three things if you can run more of the opponent uh, you can win 50-50s and you can do better at set pieces than they do if you do that every weekend you're probably not getting relegated now for all the sort of smart analytic stuff that Brentford do those three things I find are just at the core of everything thing uh, and and i guess the smart analytic stuff is a little bit related to set pieces as well because it's not a coincidence that they're so good at that uh, but but they're very pragmatic at the basis of it whereas every time i saw southampton they just look very lightweight across the board and, and i just think fundamentally football is about solving uh, the problems that your opponents uh, present to you with and then kind of presenting problems of your own in return so that just didn't give anyone any problems i mean aside from set pieces from ward prowse there's nothing else that you look at. You know, the team you support, let's just do this. The team you support are playing Southampton at the weekend. What are you afraid of? It's like maybe Ward-Prowse will, will smack a free kick from 30 yards or something. But aside from that, what players are you worrying about? Not sure. Not that many at the moment. Now, I think the upside for Southampton... We'll see how many they end up keeping. They might have to sell some players. The upside is that they have... the some interesting young players or maybe a year in the championship will will do them good it'll, it'll toughen them up a bit i'm sure uh, you probably want to add some experience and physicality across the board i think in that team uh, they're now going to appoint russell martin from swansea interesting appointment i don't watch enough of the championship uh, but but i do notice that people praise him a lot swansea didn't make the playoffs but they don't have a great squad or a lot of money they weren't really expected to they played nice and tidy football had the second most possession in the division so it's a bit of a risk he's pretty young still I, I, I am a bit puzzled by how you go from nathan jones to russell martin their footballing principles seem to be very very different but hey there are some exciting youngsters in this squad. So if you can keep the best of them and you have a sort of youngish manager in charge who plays positive football, could be good. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about making an effort to squeeze in Southampton games and from the championship in my schedule next uh, season. God, the time has really flown by here, which I wasn't expecting when I sort of... When I took my notes, I thought this is going to be a slightly thin episode, but whoa, time has flown. Uh, we're going to jump straight. I, mean, I wanted to chat about Luton. Let's do it after the, the 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 playoff final, whichever way it goes. Maybe we'll have a preview episode. I don't know how we'll figure that out. Either way, uh, betting bit at the end. You know, the, the betting column is up. The, the big uh, weekend preview is up on the big bets on website, uh, betson.com slash eu slash blog. I think that's where you'll find it. Or just follow me on Twitter. I will inevitably post the link. I try not to sort of spam links to my work because that would be tiresome for you guys who follow me. But I do put a bit of work into these uh, betting previews. So it's nice uh, to, to, to just show that they exist. You can check them out if you're interested. I actually think... The, the one bet I like the most this week, it's actually in the treble. I don't have it down as a single, but you can obviously play it as a single if you want. Nottingham Forest versus Arsenal, I like both teams to score. 
a lot here. I mean, Forest have scored in 16 out of 18 home games. Arsenal have just kept one clean sheet in their last nine. They've lost defenders to injury. You know, Saliba, uh, Tomiyasu and uh, Zinchenko all out now. So that back four doesn't look quite the way it should do. And, and Forest... You know, Tai Waiwani has scored four goals in the last two. You have a front three of him flanked by Gibbs White and Brennan Johnson. I kind of like that. I think that's quite a spicy front three that I'm hoping they can play consistently next year. I think that'll cause a lot of trouble for, for a lot of folk. I really like Iwani. I've been a little bit confused about him getting rotated at times this season. I think he's a really good forward. Um, and, and with Arsenal, of course, you're expecting Arsenal to go away to Nottingham Forest and, and get a goal or, or, or something. But are they keeping a clean sheet? No, I don't think that. I don't think that at all. So I think we'll get goals here. Um, uh, uh, just a single on both teams to score will get you... Um, 163 is the odds now. I think that's completely fine. It's not the most exciting bet. I was kind of hoping it would be a, a smidge higher. You you can slap on over two and a half goals as well. I mean, if you read the, the betting column regularly, you know I love both teams to score plus over two and a half goals. You'll bring the odds up to 1.92. So that's a much more interesting bet in that regard. And the only winning result you lose is the 1-1. And I, I, I think we'll get more goals than that. So let's call, let's call it both teams to score plus over two and a half goals. I think that is a, a fine bet this weekend. More analysis and stuff. I think we were well over 2,000 words this week with the betting preview. I've put some more work into it. So it's the boost, the treble, and three selected singles. We're on a pretty good run of being in profit on the singles recently. As we're finishing the season pretty Pretty well. Uh, I'm pretty happy with how it's going. So I hope you check that out if you're planning to have a punt on something this weekend. And of course, always gamble responsibly. All right, that was a that was a different pod. You know, in a week when everyone's falling over themselves about City and their path to, to global dominance, we we had a chat about West Ham and Southampton mostly. Well, you know, I, I like to go in slightly different directions here, you know? There's no point you coming to the resort if I'm going to tell you exactly the same stuff you heard on, on Football Weekly or, or The Ramble or whichever pod you you prefer. Uh, so so let's, let's go slightly rogue as often as we, as we can. And I, just, I just want to keep the powder dry on City because they're going to win the league now. And then they're probably also going to win the, the Cup and the Champions League. I think the treble is likely to happen now. And so we need... There will be more weeks when we need to do City episodes. So let's keep the City chat uh, in the back pocket. Let's do it soon. And in the meantime, I hope you guys enjoyed the weekend. Uh, I'll see you again next week when we will almost certainly have a Premier League uh, champion. Maybe that'll be the time to have that conversation. We will see. Uh, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.